when people say, well, what are you working on? They want to know what's the next object thing that they can hold in their hand. It's really difficult for people to appreciate that I spend the majority of my time just trying to put ideas together. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to product design visionary and pioneer of smart textiles, Rebecca Pales Friedman. As founder and principal of Interwoven Design Group, she combines her expertise in wearable technology, functional apparel, and soft goods with a passion for design, and her clients range from startups to NASA. Her latest work includes the Apex Exosuit by Hero Wear, the redesign of the Miami Dolphins cheer squad uniforms, and BioWare, a kinetic accessory that communicates the wearer's emotions. She's racked up over 25 years of experience designing products for athletes and has held positions as design director for Nike, Champion, and Fila. And get this, she is a co-founder of Search, space exploration architecture, whose mission is to produce innovative, human-centered designs which enable human beings to not only live, but thrive in space environments beyond Earth. And search our recent first place winners of the NASA 3D printed habitat competition. Also a lifelong educator. She burns fiercely and brightly like the superstar she is. Here's Rebecca. I'm Rebecca Pales Friedman. I live and work in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm a designer. I make things basically in an effort to understand things. And that's sort of what got me to the point that I'm at today. I'm also an author. I'm a professor. I'm a researcher. But all of these things are kind of like extensions of my design work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I love it. And your design work is really fascinating, which we are going to get deep into that. But before we get there, I always like to go all the way back to the beginning, because I think it gives me a sense of like how the designer and you got formed, if you tell me about your formative years. So that means your childhood, your family, what kinds of things fascinated your young mind? Well, I have to tell you, I'm the perfect result of doing a million things as a child that I didn't really appreciate until I got older. I grew up in New Hampshire, uh, very rural New Hampshire. There wasn't a lot to do. I had to amuse myself quite a bit. But I come from this family that has this tremendous history uh, and tradition of craft, which was really lucky 
because my grandfather had a huge wood shop. My father had a wood shop in the basement. Cool. I got to learn how to use all the power tools at a very young age. One of my grandmothers was a master knitter and crocheter. My other grandmother sewed and quilted. My mom like was always sewing. I learned how to sew when I was about four. And I started making all my own clothes by the time I was in second grade. What? That's amazing. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And garment construction is a fascinating assemblage of parts and relationship to the human body, too. Oh, my God. It's so true. And, you know, with my current self looking back, I can see why these things were really interesting to me, right? I love the idea of taking these flat patterns that seemed so abstract Like if you've ever looked at a sleeve pattern, it doesn't look anything like an arm. And then putting them together and then having them make this shell that fit your body and that you could use the clothing that you were putting on your body, not only to just express yourself, you know, like how you felt, but also change your perception of what you could do and who you are. I've always been fascinated by this, this this relationship between the things that you put on your body, why you put them on, and what the result is when you do it. Yes. I mean, as a young child, you can change your own perception of who you are in a sort of dress-up kind and imagination kind of way. But then it also must have been really interesting to see how you changed other people's perception of you based on what you were wearing. Yeah. A lot of people go through this. I don't know if they articulate it as much, but it's it's a big part of discovering who you are is just trying on different personas. Uh, one of the things that growing up in rural New Hampshire, there wasn't a lot of high fashion, but and I didn't even really understand what fashion was, but I started making shoes and clogs and handbags and all sorts of clothes and costumes. This is my childhood. This isn't before I even got to middle school and high school. I'm experimenting with these things. I feel like that and because I have a three siblings. So we had a big family. It was a family of six. Mm. And we always had like chores to do and things to do. And at the time I kept thinking, oh God, why do I have to do this? Is this terrible? I'd rather <laughs> just be playing when I was working in the garden. But the gardening that I did as a young child, and now I'm an avid gardener, It showed me that even if you put all the same ingredients together, you never yield the same result. This is like a huge lesson to learn at a very young age, you know, when it comes to design. I know I have this romantic view of my childhood, but that's one of the things that as a person that's getting older, it's one of the things that, that I think is the most wonderful about looking back at how all the experiences in your life have come together. Yes. And it sounds like you had enough unstructured, you had chores and things, but you had enough unstructured time to kind of process all of your observations and sort of play around with your own creative agency as you were learning materiality and agency with how to put things together. And when you learn how to put things together, you also learn how to take them apart and you learn how the world works and you start to draw all these synergistic conclusions about giving love and attention to things that grow in the garden and What a fascinating and fertile thing to be able to stock your mind with. Yeah, I have a really funny story about taking things apart. When I was in middle school, I started to play the flute, which I played for for many years. And I was like fascinated by how it worked. It's like a really complicated thing, right? But it makes this, it's a, the concept is simple, but the tool is very complicated and I couldn't understand it. So I took my entire flute apart. Like I'm talking 
thousands of pieces. My parents, when they saw what I did, it was all laid out on my bedroom floor, all organized because I was determined to put it back together. They flipped out. I'm like, don't worry. I got this. I'm going to put it back together. I got the whole flute back together and it wouldn't play. Oh, no. No. And it turns out, which I didn't know, right? Like I got all the parts in the right spot. What I didn't know is that each key has a little pad and those pads have to be individually tempered so that they're airtight. So even though I got all the pads back in, nothing was airtight and it wouldn't play. Anyway, long story short is I had to send it out. It took two months. They, I got it all rebalanced. <laughs> it cost my parents a lot of money, more than probably the original flute. But what I learned was you can take things apart. You can put them back together, but there's always a nuance that <laughs> you might be overlooking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that nuance. That'll get you every time. That was middle school. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds like you were a delightful problem for your parents. I, I I think that they would agree with that with with that description. Where did you fit in your sort of sibling dynamic? I'm the oldest, but all of my siblings are really accomplished, wonderful people, and um, they also tell me I'm the bossiest. Mm, well, the oldest. Sometimes you're given more responsibility, and sometimes that power goes to your head. <laughs> okay, so in the adolescent years. How was your creativity manifesting? And did you have to deal with any of the awkward angstiness that most teenagers do? And if so, how did you navigate that? I would say one of the biggest things about my like middle school and high school years was that I was like, I was one of these kids that did a million things, right? So I was in all the clubs. I, I did, you know, all this. I did a million sports. I mean, I earned 12 varsity letters. What? Um, Yeah. And you know, it was so cool. This was really cool. And this is like something that I feel like really changed the trajectory of my life. So the town I grew up in New Hampshire, the name of it's Exeter. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Nike had a a small factory called Blue Ribbon Sports in Exeter. And um, Nike's first full-time employee was my high school track coach. His name was Jeff Johnson. He wasn't a teacher at the high school. He worked at the factory. You know, after our classes, we would run over to the factory about a mile away. We would meet Jeff and we would do our workouts. And we were a very accomplished track team. And there were so many life lessons I learned from being an athlete. But one of them was that your clothes were also like tools to help you be successful. When we ran to the factory, like we didn't know that we were like the guinea pigs of Jeff's R&D. We just thought this was way cool. Like he would make us new shoes for almost every major track meet. We would keep these running logs of our shoes of like how many miles we had done on each shoe. We would turn them back in. They would run tests on them. I mean, we were part of the R&D process for the development of some of Nike's like early running shoes. That's so cool. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. I mean, I remember... Like I graduated from high school in, in the late seventies. So this is a long time ago, right? This is ancient history for most people listening, but there was no such thing as cross training then. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even a, a term. Jeff wanted us to lift weights so that we could, his theory was if we gained upper body strength, we'd be stronger runners. And he couldn't find weights that were light enough for us. So he built them with cement and coffee cans and broomsticks. And that's how we did our weight training. It's crazy when you think about it, but that's where the idea came from. The way that it impressed me was that I'm thinking, oh, let's give this a try. Oh, cool. This really works. Another huge lesson for me 
was the power of feeling like you had superpowers. Ooh. I know, right? Like, think about it. You're in high school. You're in those angsty years like you were talking about. Your track coach like just gives everybody on the team a brand new uniform, brand new shoes, a matching bag, a matching track suit. And we go to a major regional track event. And when we get off the bus, everyone stops and watches us debus, like all the other teams. They all look a little bit more ragtag because, you know, their coach doesn't work at night. Yeah. <laughs> and their faces just like, look at us like, oh shit, they're going to win. They're going to win this event. And it was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like they mm -hmm. believed we were going to win. We believed we were going to win. The only difference between us and them was our coach and how we felt inside. Like it was like the power of your mind to be successful. Yes. And the power of connecting presentation with your own self-perception. Exactly. Oh, and perception to the other people too. I mean, and when you, when you have that sort of collective perception, then your belief internally skyrockets. Those were my childhood and adolescent experiences. Wow. That's intense. Did you stay in touch with Jeff Johnson? Um, no, I haven't been in touch with him in a long time. But it is funny to read some of the, the books written about Nike in that period and realize that I was part of that history. You know, it was always a dream of mine to end up working for Nike. And at, at my very last job as a corporate active sportswear designer was at Nike. So it was great. It was like so many things in my life came full circle. Like when I was in second grade, all I wanted to do is be an astronaut. Now I, I'm so lucky because I get to design things for space and I'm working. Whoever heard of a fashion and industrial designer that came out of active sportswear that now collaborates with NASA? Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> so many things have just come full circle. So I try to keep an open mind whenever I am on a tangent and, and realize that the universe will weave everything together for me. Ah. Uh. I love that. And I love that about my job is that I get to talk to people who have followed these paths that have unfolded in such amazing ways. So back to you being a kid who likes to do everything and has had a taste of feeling like a superhero. You kind of have stayed in that zone, or at least from my perception, you've stayed in that zone. I, I, in researching you, I realized you studied mechanical engineering, fashion, millinery, graphics, industrial design, not necessarily consecutively, a lot of it East Coast, right? A lot of it in New York City, Pratt, FIT, SVA. Was that just a pure hunger for more information about how things work and how to take them apart and put them back together or, or how to design and build things that don't exist yet? Okay, so I have two different answers for you. The first is, why do I have so many design degrees? I think it's because I get bored. Mm. And I feel like, oh, I've mastered fabric. I want to know how to do graphics. Oh, I've mastered graphics. I want to do wood, metal, glass, ceramics, interaction, technology. It's like, I just, I think of it as like acquiring a palette of like a different medium in which to create something. So it's sort of like theme and variations, but so that's the first answer. It's like, why do I keep doing it? Because I get bored. Why do I keep doing the same thing? Because it's not really about the thing I'm designing. I've, I've been realizing this lately. It's about that aha moment. 
Mm-hmm. When all these separate ideas come together and you're just like, whoa, I just figured it out. <laughs> I don't know. I know that sounds really naive, right? No. But it's like there's something about that when things come together and you don't know when it's going to happen, but when it does, it gives you chills. That's And I'm addicted to that. So I guess I'm an adrenaline junkie. That's the fix, right? That, and that's the high we keep chasing. What you're saying is that when you study all these different things, then you're able to find these disparate connections that haven't been made before. And then when you do, and you also possess enough knowledge to sort of reverse engineer it into like maybe a path for it becoming executable, it it's like light bulbs and fireworks and orgasms all at once. It's like very... <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) And you keep chasing that high, sugar. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And well, and it sounds like academics was like a place where you're very comfortable doing that. Yeah, I came from a family, you know, both of my parents were teachers and my father, he actually started out his career as a mathematician teaching college math and then became a computer science teacher. So I I'm unusual in that in the early 70s, I had my own design computer. My father built me a computer so I could design. And I kept saying, "Mm, Dad, I don't really like typing the code. Is there some way I could draw into my computer? And this was like in seventh grade. So I think that that part of having this like area to be free to explore and question comes from this family of academics. Mm Mm-hmm. I can see that because you were certainly supported in all of your questioning. Well, except for the flute disassembly that that was maybe a little bit discouraged. Okay, so after this track experience and all of this education at the university level, are there any stories from those chapters that are really formative? Or is it more about the pattern of getting bored and doing new things? I would say that the biggest formative thing for me was, even though my parents were really academic, they didn't really have a lot of experience in the arts. To them, like having a career in art meant that I was going to starve and be unsuccessful. <laughs> I know that's sort of uh, naive. And they really encouraged me to study engineering. Okay. So that's why I started out in engineering. But I have to tell you that my experience studying engineering at that time period was that it was really misogynistic. Ugh, I bet. There was over a hundred students in the mechanical engineering program at the University of New Hampshire, and I was one of seven women. And we were not supported. We were actively dissupported. Uh. <laughs> and I just found it like so taxing to be in that type of environment. So I think that's the other thing that when I transferred to Pratt um, to study design, I felt like I came home. I felt like I found my my tribe, per se, mm-hmm. you know, like I was surrounded by people that that were inquisitive and interesting and smart and wanted to know why and filled with a huge campus of people that just made things constantly. I felt like that was really something that I would never not want that in my life. So I think that that's really the biggest takeaway. I mean, I've been on the faculty at Pratt now for this is my 22nd year. I feel like I found my home and I was like, damn, I'm going to stay here. I'm also a very faithful person, as you can see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I relate to that because I felt like I found my home when I went to grad school at RISD. And I just recently returned here to be on the faculty and I feel like I'm home again. And there is something really powerful about finding your tribe. I also spent several years in a misogynistic environment and 
you know, I, I think I was really busy proving how tough I could be, but I wasn't taking account of how taxing it was just to have to prove myself over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And then the funny thing is, of course, I end up in the one area of design that is probably the most misogynistic industrial design. You know, like, and fashion, it's definitely a glass ceiling situation where 90% of the people in the fashion industry are women, but the other 10% are the men and they're on the top. But at least you're surrounded by a lot of people that you can commiserate with. And architecture, I feel like it's a little bit more balanced between men and women. Although there, I know that there are more men, but there's so many successful women to look up to. And industrial design, it's really difficult, especially if you're going to be working in technology, consumer products, and just basically surrounded by, I would say it's, it's because it's so close to engineering, there's a lot of misogyny in industrial design. That's one of the reasons why so much of the work that I do and the, and the things that have been driving me recently have been about supporting women in industrial design. My industrial design practice, I know we're going to get there in a bit, but my industrial design practice was set up to be a female-led and primarily female-driven industrial design firm because so many products are designed by men for men mm -hmm. and not by women for women <laughs> or just women for people. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a product and I'm like, Ugh, a man designed this. It clearly yeah, has like, no like sensitivity. All the power tools that don't fit in your hand. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> or if they do fit in your hand, they're really wimpy and you can't drill the damn hole. Right. Lately, it's been making me want to just like cuff somebody upside the head. Like, <laughs> bam, what were you thinking? So how has that impacted your feeling of responsibility to be visible in the work that you do? Knowing that visibility is also sort of becoming a representation role model for those you know, who might see you and be inspired? I have to tell you, every person always says this, but that was a really good question. This is something that I think I've been thinking about like subconsciously and have had many thoughts about it recently. And I can sort of relate it between working corporately and then having my own firm. When I worked corporately, I was a very successful corporate designer, design director at Fila, champion at Nike, running like businesses, $500 million businesses, traveling around the world, you know, staffs of 40 people type of thing, like super high powered. But I, like no one ever knew that it was me that was designing their stuff. I know on one hand, it sounds sort of self-serving to say well, that kind of bugged me, but it did kind of bug me. All the people that had their names on things, I felt like they were treated differently. Like their design voice seemed more listened to. And I think as a woman designer, being heard is so critical. I think that was one of the reasons why when everything transpired and I opened Interwoven, why I really wanted to have a voice in design so that not only was I, I, I don't really think of myself, like I don't go out of my way and think of myself, oh, I'm a role model. I should do X, Y, Z. But I do feel like just the fact that I do things and the way that I do them and have confidence that I'm doing things in a way that other people don't and I'm successful has helped me have that a take on more of a leadership role in design. Also, as females, we're sort of socialized not to be self-promotional or not to call attention to ourselves and also to be sort of deferential to the group 
which those are good things at times, but it leaves us feeling awkward about asserting our voices or becoming visible. Or even to take it a step further, when we do assert our voice, we're called out and called names and like sort of pushed down again into our expected role. Yes. And overcoming that is really challenging because you've already had to overcome all your fear to speak out. And then when you speak out, everyone pounces on you. You're just like, oh God, is this really worth it? Okay. So you know what you're talking about. Would you be willing to share how you found your gumption to get back up again when these types of things happened? It's disheartening and it's exhausting. It's very exhausting. And when I think back of all the things that happened in my career, it's like gets heavier and heavier of a burden to carry. And I have less and less patience. I was always outspoken. I've never had a problem advocating for myself. But at the same time, it's so noticeable now that I I don't have the patience that I did to sit still. I, I almost have to immediately say one of my favorite lines is, your inherent bias is showing. Oh, <laughs> Nice. I mean, I, I have tons of stories. None of them are pleasant. I think any person listening to this podcast is going to have similar stories. But, you know, when you speak up in a room and then you're told that your idea doesn't matter. I'll give you a classic example. When I was design director at Champion, I developed this line C9 by Champion for Target. It was really actually a super fun job. And I loved the people I worked with and my boss. But my boss had also bosses and they weren't quite as cool as my boss. <laughs> and I remember there was this, I believed in this one product. I really believed in it. I felt like it was the right thing to do. So every season that I had to show like the designs for that season, I would reintroduce this product. It was a very simple white performance polo tennis shirt. Everyone's like, it's not brand specific. It's not good. It's not this. No one's going to blah, blah. I was such a pain in the ass about this that finally my boss said, how can I get you to shut up about this shirt? I said, give me a test. Give me a 500 unit three store test. And he was like, all right, fine. They let me put the style in the line. Within 18 months, the style was the number one best selling style in the brand and drove millions of dollars of profit. But I had to be such a nudge about that. And if I hadn't just kept going back and back and back and kept putting it in front of them, they would have never put it in the line. You know, they say it's all about timing. And I, I know that, that that was just like literally their goal was to shut me up. But their benefit was that they got a great style. But it took a lot of inner strength to just believe in that, just to keep believing. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask. My follow-up question is... That inner strength came from trusting your instincts, being at it long enough to know just intuitively that you were onto something, being fed up, like all of the above. Where did that come from? I think I was born with it. I do think some people have it sort of encoded in their being and it, it never gets sort of taught out of them. Like there are certain things that I don't believe in and there are certain things I do believe in. And if I believe in something, it's like I don't question it anymore. I don't know if maybe it's not just that one shirt style that we were talking about a second ago, but like there were other things that I really, really believe in. I just feel like it just becomes part of you when you believe in something really strongly. And then it's really easy to fight for it when you believe that, you know, it's mm -hmm. like social justice. 
like a lot of people take a lot of personal risk to promote their beliefs in what is right and what is wrong. And that's the only way I can equate that to like when I think about the future. So, you know, when I'm constantly thinking about the future and what if and why, and when I want to understand something, I just believe that other people are going to want to know the, the answers to the same questions. Yeah. It's sometimes disheartening when they don't or when they're actually so invested in resisting finding out the answer that you have to chip away at them with like these poor ass power tools designed by men. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But in the end, when you're successful, it gives you such a rush that you're just like, yes. Yeah. To be honest with you, there isn't anything I like more than being right. <laughs> so did you get the satisfaction you needed from those people who just wanted to shut you up about the tennis polo? Yeah. I, I mean, it was almost just like the fact that it was successful was enough for me. Like, I don't need to rub it in someone's face like Nana Boo Boo. I was right and you were wrong. But it was just like... You know what the best part about a story like that? It afforded me more freedom. And then people believed in me and gave me room to be able to explore new ideas. That's kind of what I was getting at. Like, did they trust you more after that? And yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So in a way, you were fighting for not just the tennis polo, but you were fighting for the trust that you needed to do your job well. Yeah, your voice. You have to, no matter what, no matter who you are, male, female, young, old, you know, whatever your background is, you always have to fight for your voice. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So you founded Interwoven as part of Fighting for Your Voice. So what kind of work and projects do you get to do at Interwoven? And I'm assuming it's a little bit of everything. When I was working corporately, what I was personally, what I was experiencing was that there was never any time in the corporate cycle to just develop something new, something that would take like maybe two, three years to to develop some like really deep R&D takes a long time. So unless you were like super lucky and landed a job at the Nike kitchen, there's just no way that corporately you were going to be able to be in these long term R&D type situations. And I so I saw this need where there was somebody could understand what corporate needs were, understand what drives business, how a product should be placed, marketing, like every aspect of a product. And then this gap with this longer R&D. So I felt like I could serve a purpose by being that sort of in-house 
and outside the loop person that could develop new technologies, new products, new approaches that wouldn't just fit into like a six month design cycle. We don't do just sensory technology. We do some sensory technology things. Everything that we do at Interwoven has to do with the way your body interacts with either a product or a space. Basically, it all comes back to having like this empathy to understand who your user is, understand what they're going through, and then working to figure out how can you do it better? How can you improve their life, their situation, their, you know, whatever it is. I told you already, I get bored really quickly. The other thing about working for myself, having my own design firm is that I never have to do the same project twice. Even if I have clients that come back to me again and again and again, it's always the next thing, the next iteration, something new, something that hasn't been done, some other problem that came up, some other challenge. I've done a huge, diverse range of things. Recently, I redesigned the Miami Dolphins cheerleaders uniforms. And that was a really interesting project because I felt like the cheerleaders weren't really seen as athletes. They are some of the most accomplished female athletes out there. The things that they can do, the average person cannot do. They're amazing. But they were treated more like eye candy than the amazing athletes that they were. So I kept posing the question, like, what can we do to like help them perform at the highest level and to be seen as athletes? That's just one example. You know, there's there's a lot of examples that I do of the work that I do where I really think about empowering the person that is interacting with whatever product we're designing. So can I ask you a little bit more about the cheerleading wear? What kinds of specific changes needed to be made from showcasing their sexuality to showcasing their athleticism? I just thought about what do you, when you go to work out, what do you wear? Like you open your drawer, you got a bunch of bras, you got a bunch of tights, you got some other stuff and you get to pick whatever you want to wear that day. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of empowering. So I developed a closet of items, like a bunch of different types of bra tops, um, crop tops, some skirts, some shorts, some tights, a, a jacket. And then I was like, okay, all of these things coordinate together. They all look great together. You guys just wake up, whatever on Tuesday morning and you figure out what you want to wear at next Sunday's game. And they don't have to wear the same thing all the time. This is super empowering. It's incredibly empowering. It also allows each individual to take their own needs and comfort into consideration. Yeah. And then on a technical side, this was a challenge because, you know, if you, you know, if you're watching a football game and you watch the cheerleaders, they never look like they're sweating. You're always like, how do they do that? Trust me. They sweat. <laughs> so I had to find fabric that when the colored fabric got wet, it didn't change color. So on TV, it would never look like their garments were getting wet. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. you know, a navy blue t-shirt gets wet and then where it's wet, it's darker blue. Mm -hmm. I had to find fabric that didn't do that. It was both a technical challenge as well as a materials challenge. How do you gauge impact? Or success. The nice mentions that I got. Everybody was like, love the uniforms. They look great. But that's not the only product that I do where I think of the female user as well. Like I just recently designed a exoskeleton suit. 
called the Apex Suit. It's by Hero Wear. And it's for logistic workers that have to do repetitive lifting. The one thing I did was to introduce the idea of modularity in the suit so that I could fit a wide range of body shapes and sizes, including women's bodies. I mean, one thing people don't realize is logistic workers, about 50% of all logistics workers are women. And they've never had equipment or devices designed for them to be able to do their job. It's sort of like in the military, same thing. You know, there's no such thing as a bulletproof vest that also accommodates a female physique. It's ridiculous. So we designed the Apex suit to be the first exosuit for all. And it fits women and men or traditional women and men's physique and a range of heights from about five feet to about six foot four and weights from about 110 pounds to almost 300 pounds. And you did this, I'm specifically calling out the modularity because that's what makes it actually work. It's not averaging people all together into one. No, that, that never works. No, you can't average it. And that's where we got into all the trouble. But the question, so it was a business question as well. We could have made 19 suits and then you pick your shape and size, you know, like you do with jeans or something, but that wasn't really cost effective. We standardized the most expensive, like the mechanical components of the suit. They're standardized across all sizes and then customized certain components to be able to give us this wide range of fit. Fascinating. That must have been not only an exciting challenge for a brain like yours that's analytical and artistic and fashion-minded, but also very meaningful in terms of fulfilling a very real public health need for an underserved segment of society. Yeah, it's true. It's really interesting that you brought up that word meaningful, because I personally feel like finding meaning and what you do is what ultimately leads you to having a happy life and I hopefully a successful career. But that, you know, making meaning is really key. And you do a lot of things that are, they're outside the box, literally. So the meaning contained within is going to be coming from not society necessarily, but your personal connection to serving society in ways that they don't even think or know that they need yet. It's like a multi-sided problem, right? So yes, it's making meaning for yourself so that you're happy making meaning for the, you know, the greater good. But I also find a lot of meaning with the teams and the people that I collaborate with. Ultimately, I feel like we're social beings. And when we can figure out a way to work together, just like you and I, like, We never spoke before, and here we are having this really intimate and deep conversation about things that are really important to both of us. But like the whole idea of collaboration, it takes a lot of faith, right? You have to trust the other person. You have to believe in them. And you also have to feel that they're going to be supportive of you. If you don't feel supported it literally will kill your creative spirit. I think when you're, you know, making a product, of course that product is is meaningful. The purpose that it serves has meaning, but the team and the people that you work with and working with them to come up with an idea, 
in the end, that is equally as meaningful to me. I think that's one of the reasons why I love teaching as well, right? Because the nice thing about teaching is I'm not designing anything really that my students are designing. I never, I always ask them a question when they come to me, like, what do you think I should do, X or Y? I always tell them, well, you really want me to answer that? And they were like, look at me like, yeah, of course I do. And then I, I say to them, well, you know, if I answer that, I'm the designer. <laughs> I said, I think you're the designer. I think you should answer that question. Ooh, that's a good one. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's sassy, right? And it's supposed to make them laugh, but it's also supposed to give them confidence that they can find their own answers. And to me, this is sort of like the kernel of truth in, in you know, in the design process and, and finding meaning in, in what we do. Yes. And you are encouraging them to discover within themselves their own why for doing things as opposed to trying to match some sort of external expectation of how things should be. Exactly. And hopefully that will lead them, anybody, even if it's people, even it's myself, right? I recently was on a creative team and I did not feel supported. I felt minimized. I noticed that even with all of my experience and all the things I've done, how easy it was to get under my skin and make me feel like I didn't have a, you know, anything to contribute to the project. For me, meaning is so intertwined with the words trust and support. And also, you got to have faith. You have to have a lot of faith. You know, being a designer is basically having faith that that you don't know the answer before you take a job. I mean, that's one of the, the main, the number one question I get from a lot of people. It's like, well, do you know what you're going to design before you sign the contract? I'm like, no, I just know that I will know what the solution is. They were like, how do you know that? I said, I don't know. I just have faith in my process. I feel like I'll come up with something. If I had to think of the solution to everything before I signed a contract, I would not be able to make a living. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, just it wouldn't work like that. <laughs> Not only that, right. but you'd be doing all the hard work before you got paid for it. <laughs> exactly. So I want to talk about, in addition to Interwoven, you've also co-founded Space Exploration Architects. You know, I know a little something about designing homes on Earth, but I know nothing about how to thrive in outer space, which is what you doing with space. I mean, I don't even know where to start. Just tell me how you're designing homes on Mars. It's crazy and awesome. Isn't it crazy? And winning, winning first place prizes with NASA. I know, right? And it blows people's minds. Like literally, I, I can't really talk about it with, a, with you know, at, at too many <laughs> dinner parties, because then everybody else just looks at me like, well, you know, is, do, does my life have any meaning? You're designing a <laughs> habitat for the moon? <laughs> you know, so yeah, but it, it was an interesting story. You know, I, I was not the original founder of Search. The very first iterations of Search were from my colleague, uh, Michael Morris, and his former wife started Search many years ago when they were teaching at Columbia. And then eventually, Michael ended up uh, teaching in the architecture program at Pratt and wanted to enter his Pratt class into a competition for a grant at NASA to design a transit habitat. But he needed another person. He needed somebody else to like collaborate with him. It had to be cross-disciplinary. And I was already doing uh, research work with my classes in wearable technology for NASA Johnson Space Center in the industrial design department. 
So the dean of the School of Design, like, sort of match made us. They put us together. We taught for three years together. And from that work, I joined the search family. So, and it's primarily women-owned. Michael is a founding member. There's a total of five partners. All of us, other than Michael, are women. We all come from various backgrounds. I'm the industrial design lead. And it's really interesting in that it's very highly technical. Like we have to learn a lot about, you know, the environment that we're working in. And you have to have this tremendous capacity to not only just retain technical information, but also to project how it might be affecting the astronaut, the person that's actually going to experience it. I'm never going to be an astronaut. I'm never going to go to the moon or Mars, but I can use my design spidey sense to sort of figure out what are some of the problems that they're going to anticipate. So there's many really brilliant people at NASA who could design a technically appropriate and perfectly executed habitat for either the surface of the moon, the surface of Mars, for transit, for any of that. But that doesn't mean that they would necessarily put the human inhabitant first. I mean, they might want, number one, they're going to say they want to preserve their life, but but they might not say, but they also need a space to be able to be creative or the quality of light or or the, the materials and the tools, the surface textures that they interact with. All of these problems we approach purely as if we were designing anything on earth and then just under these extreme conditions and also the restrictions of payload, how much materials we can bring up using indigenous materials that are, you know, they call them in situ materials. So the in situ resources, but basically but moon up. dirt. Yeah. Moon dirt and Mars rocks. Like how do you, <laughs> so do you have some chemistry understanding of how they're composed and how you might? Luckily I don't have to be on that side of it, but we have been able to partner with some amazing companies. Most recently we partnered with Icon a technology company in Austin, Texas. Uh, they were the first company to ever 3D print with uh, cementitious materials, basically cement, 3D print cement housing. They have an entire R&D arm that's looking to develop a printer that will be able to be autonomously controlled, robotically controlled from Earth that they can send to the moon. And they're actively working with um, with NASA to develop this technology. They're such an amazing company. And what they realized was they could get to their end result faster if they hired architecture and design firms to design the thing that they would be printing. Once they knew what they were printing, that would help them develop their technology faster. So they engaged us search and they also engaged um Bjarke Engels group. We didn't collaborate but we worked in simultaneously to develop infrastructure and habitats for the lunar surface in an attempt to be able to make that jump to the technology that's needed to actually execute this. Wow. That's really um holistic thinking there, which I appreciate. And also, I am so jealous that you've built a life for yourself where you get a window into all of these fascinating industries. Not only that, but you get a, you have a voice and, you know, creative agency within them. This is so exciting. (laughs) 
I love the work that we do at Search. I think it's really interesting. I would say that one of the things that I do really well is that I can take these super sort of complex ideas and sort of boil them down and then communicate them in a very simple way. That's what I feel like is the number one thing that I do with the work that I do at Search is understand the complexity and then boil things down to like ask the question, but what's the most important thing? What is the goal of this? Why are we doing this? You'd be surprised when you ask these really simple, straightforward questions, like how often you can stump really smart people. Mm-hmm. No, that distillation process is is something that I think a lot of times without a very strong distiller <laughs> like yourself, people can get off into the weeds and details and lose track of the direction that the distillation helps anchor. Because, you know, it's sort of like undervalued, right? So it's really easy when people say, well, what are you working on? They want to know what's the next object thing that they can hold in their hand or see with their eyes or experience, you know, that I'm making. And if I tell them, well, you know, I've just been really working at like putting these ideas together. It's like not tangible. It's really difficult for people to appreciate that I spend the majority of my time just trying to put ideas together. But, you know, that said, when it actually comes to something that gets finished and is out there in the world and introduced, then they can say, ah, now I saw. There was a child's book. It was from my childhood. Uh, you know, everybody has their favorite book from when they're little. Mine was this book called Frederick. I don't even know if it's still in print, but it was this mouse. Like he didn't really want to collect the nuts for the cold weather. And all the other mice were like, Frederick, what are you doing? And he would just sit on a rock, right? <laughs> and then, you know, he wasn't getting his nuts. Then he didn't pick the grain. He didn't do this and he didn't do that. And everyone was angry at him the whole time because he was just sitting on this rock, whatever he was doing. But then the cold winter came and they ate all the nuts and they ate all the grain and they ate all this and there was very little left. And they said, Frederick, if you had worked, we wouldn't be hungry now. And he stood on the rock and he like explained to everybody the warm sunshine and the beautiful smells and the sounds of the birds. Basically, it was the arts. And when he did that, it's like it let all the other mice's like little heads like ha be happy. <laughs> and I thought that was like such an, an incredible story. And I feel like that's sort of like where I get this, this desire to like sort of put the ideas together. And yet it comes out with good products in the end. But really, it's like this gathering of ideas and then trying to reformulate them into something new, to something that's meaningful. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is your creative process. It sounds like this gathering of information and synthesizing ideas and distilling out the meaningful direction that things need to head in, but then also communicating that in a way that can galvanize and coalesce your collaborators. Not just my collaborators. I always think of it as you never want to talk down to people that don't understand the big words. It just makes them feel stupid. And if they feel stupid, it goes back to this whole thing with the support. If they feel stupid, it kills their creativity. So if you can communicate things that in an inclusive way, then you're going to get better results no matter what it is. So can you break this down for me a little bit, like just into practical terms, your process, how do you go about gathering all the information you need? What does the synthesization of these ideas? That's the $24 million question. (laughs) Yeah. But like what in your day to day life, what does that look like? Just like you're you're making a cup of coffee Uh, and you're thinking about cementious 3D printing and moon. Not really that. I try to let go. I try to not worry about if I do this, I'll get there. It's more like, So I love to cook, right? And there's so many things that I like about it. One of the things that it does, there's a lot of other things in my life that I do, but I'm just going to use cooking as an example. I think of my brain as having layers. So if when I cook, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's creativity, there's definitely an end, you clean up, you put everything away, you're done. And it sort of keeps that top layer of my brain busy so that the underneath layers of my brain can start like, putting things together, and I'm not even really aware of it. You know how people say that they come up with good ideas when they're sleeping? Well, I'm also one of those people that I will literally, if I don't know the answer to something, I'll clean the house, take a nap, go for a run. And then somehow, miraculously, it just happens that things come together. And that's the one thing that I try more than anything to communicate to my students as well as my collaborators and my colleagues is that Sometimes you just have to like relax a little and it will all come together. I appreciate that because I think that for me, that's kind of how it works too. There's usually a research phase where I just sort of fill a bunch of information into the hopper. Exactly. And then I go do something different. If I try to stay and force it out, it's never a good result. But if I break from it, and focus on something else, usually, hopefully, something even kind of playful. I don't know. I've bought myself a sort of breathing room or latitude. I've loosened the clamp. You've let your lizard brain do the work. (laughs) Oh, lizard brain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's the same thing. Like, I go to a million museums. I see art. I have a lot of interests. I constantly read. I'm probably always in at least three or four books at the same time. I spend a lot of time working on 
my Instagram for Interwoven, especially focusing on promoting women designers. So I'm doing research about that. What's my next book? Like understanding the parameters of space. I, I've been recently doing some supportive work, working on film. I have two adult children, their uh, writer, director team, and I've been lucky enough to be able to do some executive producing on some of their short films. I really love that. There's so many different things, but then, you know, I think, oh, I learned so much doing a film that I didn't know, but then I was able to take that knowledge and apply it to say, oh, that process is so different in filmmaking, that particular process is so different than anything else. I understand now how the image and ties to the storytelling. And that helps me in my communication with my design work. It's like it's all related. Okay, so then the obvious question is, how do you not get overwhelmed? And how do you keep order with all this stuff? Or do you not worry about that? You know what I worry about more than that? Almost the opposite. When I don't have 30 million things going on, I get anxious. I should be doing something and I'm not doing it. Oh my God. To be honest with you, that's the part where I say that I was born like this. It's just the way that I'm wired that I I actually am calmer when I have a lot of things going on. I do get to a tipping point and then my husband's like, you need to take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds like he's supportive. <laughs> yeah, he's he's wonderful. He's also creative. He's a painter. That's good. You can support each other then. Yeah. Personally speaking, you've, you've got two adult children. You've got, sounds like you've got a great husband. You like to cook. You're painting the picture of a very well-rounded, full life. But your head is frequently in the future. The future of fabrics, the life on Mars, on the moon. So when you are so focused on imagining the future, does that take a toll on how you feel in the present? Actually, I feel like the present is what inspires my look to the future. Ooh, okay. I'm listening. I think of it sort of like the future is somewhere where I can let go of expectations and just like run with an idea. Since it's in the future, there's no right or wrong. You know, there's just like, well, let's question it. Let's try it. Whatever. It's like, we don't have anything to lose because it doesn't really exist yet. It's it's in the future, right? But then at the same time, ultimately that future, it comes back to the present, hopefully affecting real change. Whoa, you're reverse engineering the present from the future. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're you're very right. It's because, you know, if somebody came to you with a problem, they were like, well, we need you to sell 50 million widgets and it's got to be XYZ and cost three cents and you got to do it by tomorrow. That's not fun. That sounds horrible. That sounds like work, right? But if someone says to you, hey, in the future, what if, then that sounds like a fun problem to solve. Yeah. So like with that, I, d I did a, an experimental piece called Bioware. So the whole premise behind Bioware is, well, what if your clothing could communicate your real emotions, you know, rather than what you want? So a part of it was in a reaction to this crazy selfie epidemic, I would say, and the, the whole Insta famous thing where nobody's really real. It's like the persona you want the world to see. Mm -hmm. 
And it just seemed so inauthentic to me that I said, well, what if your clothes were the most authentic thing about you, that they actually knew what you were feeling and, and could show it on their surface so that the person you were interacting with in person saw your authentic self? So I think that that was the present inspired sort of a look to the future where I asked this open-ended question and then I created something that would help me communicate that idea with a, with a physical object so people, other people could question their relationship between their authentic selves and the selves that they put forward. I mean, even on a deeper psychological level, there are many times we're deceiving ourselves. We think we feel a certain way or are not recognizing what we're triggered by even though our goal might not be to project an image necessarily, we still don't quite understand why or how we're responding to certain inputs and and stimuli. That would be fascinating. And what was the result of BioWare? Does it telegraph your raw human emotions? (laughs) (laughs) It was a, a commission, a museum commission. So it's really more like a piece of art than than a product. But it did pose the question, which I think is an interesting question. One, like how much of your authentic self? I mean, basically, it all comes down to we all want to fit in. We want to find the people that understand us. We want to feel accepted. To be honest with you, I'm probably the only person that ever graduated with all these degrees and had never taken psychology in my life. (laughs) It's kind of funny because so much of what I do is about psychology. Yeah, I see it. Wow. Well, you have led such a fascinating life. Where do you see it going from here? Like how far into the future can you see yourself and then reverse engineer your present? Well, I'm not really sure. I'll tell you, this year has been such a tough year that it really made me think about like the big picture. So I'm currently working on a plan, like a 5, 10 and 15 year plan. I'm really good on goal setting. I love setting goals. I took a walk. I went out to Montauk, beautiful on the, you know, the tip of Long Island, right at the new year. And I found a giant starfish that Mm -hmm. had washed up Mm -hmm. and I saved it and I dried it. And it's now the inspiration for me to think about the future as having like these five arms, five different arms, and each arm can be a different thing. And they don't, one arm doesn't necessarily negate the other arm. I don't feel like your future has to be like an arrow or a ladder or singular path. It could be like a starfish. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about all the different things that I want to achieve in the future. And how does that fit into my new starfish plan? It's not done. When it's done, I'll let you know, and I'll be happy to share it with you. But I think that's a beautiful framework for all of us to think is that we don't necessarily expand in one direction. We we kind of can expand in all of these directions um, simultaneously, and they can work to support the growth of each of the arms of the starfish as a whole organism. And the other thing that, you know, the, the whole idea that if a starfish loses its leg, it grows back. And I was just thinking, oh, that's such a great idea for goal setting. So like, let's say one path closes itself off to you and you haven't achieved it. It's not like you don't know what to do next because your goals were a ladder. It's like you've got four other directions that you can go in while the fifth leg grows back. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. You've given me so much food for thought. And, you know, I have one final question, which is sort of fluffy, but it's very real. You kind of alluded to it earlier, which is you blow people's minds at dinner parties when you talk about designing habitats on Mars. 
and yet you fought so hard to have a voice. So, like, do you ever worry about, like, how to not upstage people, but, like, not play small at the same time? (laughs) Can I just be, like, brutally honest? I feel like if I was a dude, you wouldn't have asked me that. Oh, I think you're right. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have. And I'm really sorry to call you out, but I kind of feel like it's not my job to feel like I'm going to make them feel small. It's my job to say, you can do this. I'm doing it. There's no reason why you can't do it. You know, I'm really glad you called me out because the reason I asked that question is because that's what I do. I worry about it in a weird... Oh, God, don't do that. No, I know, right? So not worth it. We're all amazing people. The reason why people come to a dinner party with you is probably to hear your story. The one thing I know from personal experience about my work with NASA is like, oh my God, how scary is that? Can you imagine being in a room with all these NASA scientists and you don't have a science or engineering degree and they're listening to you? The one thing that I learned was the purpose of having a designer in the room with all of those engineers and scientists is they know so much technical stuff, but they don't have the same type of imagination. We can. You're Frederick. Uh, they can, they you're can, the mouse right, they, on the rock. Right. They can think about that they want a habitat, but until we draw the picture and show it in, you know, a rendering and it becomes real, then they have something to go for. Yes. Well, you have filled me up in, in ways I wasn't even expecting. I knew I, I was going to get a lot of my curiosity peaked and satisfied, but you've also challenged me in a way that I think has really triggered some growth. And what a fucking gift, man. <laughs> <laughs> I have really enjoyed our conversation, and I, I would love to be able to check in um, with you again in the future. Oh, I'd love that. Oh, let's definitely stay in touch. Thank you. It was so nice talking with you, Amy. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening. To learn more about Rebecca and see images of her work, read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would do us a favor and rate and review, it really does help us out. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Laura Jaramillo and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.